0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators.
1: Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
2: This podcast is powered by ACAST.
1: How you doing there? It is podcast time. We're in the lockdown. We've just been told here in Ireland, I don't know what it's like where you are, but here in Ireland, uh, we are in another three weeks of this lockdown. So we better get used to it. We better get used to it. But uh, as I was saying last week, thus far it's going okay. Thus far it's going okay. I'm joined on the line by your man, the head himself. How are you, head? How are you, Mark? How's it going? All right, son. All right. All, life, is, life is all okay. You know, it's uh, unusual. I mean, if you had said to me, John, five weeks ago, six weeks ago, that you will have, you know, three, four weeks off doing nothing, Uh, I would have thought, you know what, I'm going to be so productive. I'm going to write so much. I'm going to read so much. Yeah. But I found it very difficult. I mean, normally at this stage, I would be writing manuscripts and TV scripts and books and la blah. I found it really odd. I was actually reading something
2: about that recently where it is a specific condition. Is it? It's a thing. Yeah, it's not just you. It's a specific thing where people are just a little bit more lethargic And it's all about those rhythms of, you know, the natural body rhythms of all being upset. Even though you're getting up early in the morning and trying to do a normal day's work, albeit from home, it affects the psyche somehow where you don't sleep well, you get more more vivid dreaming people are finding. Yes. I think you
1: noticed that. Yeah. You don't, kind of know, you don't want to know though. It's really weird. <laughs> I can't no, go. No, I don't think I do. <laughs> Next time when, when this thing lifts and I get you when we when we sit down in the boozer and have a few scoops, I'll tell you all about the madness that's going on in my head. But uh but in actual in fairness, like a great grenade did go off in the house yesterday about the leaving search or this weekend about oh, the leaving yeah. search. My young fellows doing the leaving search. And do you know what I really dislike? I've been on a few shows and the presenters, no fault of their own, I think, but just they said, "Well, I believe you have a leaving cert in the house," and I felt like saying, "I don't have a leaving cert in the house. I have a young fella, gregarious, good fun, who you know, right? Yeah, who happens to have a poxy exam to do in June, and now it's in August." And at this idea, I, but it's it's all this media idea of obsessing about the leaving cert and becoming hysterical about it. And you know, I'm trying to say it's an exam. You know, that's all it is. Yeah, it's not a big deal. It's of no what, what, what annoys me is that they come out at the end of this idea of numericism, right? The kids come out at the end of our school after, what, 10 years in school, 12 years in school. Yeah. And they're given a number. You're a 300-pointer or a 400-pointer. Yeah, yeah. Or, or what are you? Oh, 415, that's what I am, or five, you know. They they go th- see what matches those numbers. Yeah, it's just nonsense. So, I mean, I, I do, I feel very sorry. I think the state should have not just postponed, but cancelled the Leaving cert it should have put it back onto the teachers and say, okay, you guys judge who is going to get what. Because teachers know what their students are like. And of course, I've heard from the inside that there was a lot of the teachers' unions saying, well, we couldn't really do that because of favoritism. And what if you teach your own kid? And I just feel like saying, if this is true, I feel like saying, be professional. Be professional. You know, it's this idea that they might have favorites or whatever. But I think that something like taking the mocks taking those marks, then averaging it out. I mean, that would have been, I think, a fairer way than having these kids who will not well, be it, able
2: to study. I'm sure it would, that would work better for some people than others. But, you know, you can't stick them all in the same. It wouldn't suit everybody, is what I mean. But having said that, I agree with you. The Having a leaving cert in August, now not only have they been off school for a month. It's, but they're going to be off school for another month or two. They're going to be off school until August, until yeah. the, the leaving cert comes around. And
1: back to your point that, you know, your head is somewhere else. You yeah. can't focus. Yeah. And they won't be able to focus. So and I, I, I think that what annoys me is that the state doesn't realise the exam is not that important. It's the anxiety and, of the kids that's important. Yeah. And if they are driven, demented because of this lockdown, and if they are anxious, this exam, surely we can say one year, you know what, we're going to cancel it. And, we're, and also, I think that would give us the opportunity to rethink the whole education system. Because if yeah. you cancel it once, you can cancel it again and go towards something more like continual assessment yeah. where in actual fact it's not. Because, you know, there's a type of brain that is an exam brain and there's a type of brain that isn't an exam brain. And what we have been obsessed in Ireland is making intelligence conditional on being good at exams. Mm. Whereas intelligence, as you and I know, comes in a thousand different forms. And being good at exams. So what we do is we elevate exam passers as being intelligent. Yeah. And then humiliate people who can't pass exams. Yeah. Whereas we realize that as you get older, nobody does exams anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, so I, I think we've got to move. And the idea of modernizing the education system, take this as an opportunity. And then work
2: backwards. I think that's a very good idea. Because you're right. I, you know, I, my head was elsewhere when I was doing my Leaving Cert. All of a sudden, at that stage, music and all the rest. But I, as you know, I went to college much later when I was 22 or 23. I can't remember which. And I was ready for, for university then. Yeah, and no, I remember. Was, and I thrived and it was fantastic. But the other thing about it is, uh, you know, you have Cal with the Leaving Cert, paralemma. You're Doing, your, doing, doing, the, the, junior MBA, doing junior the junior search. And she was really annoyed purely because she was working towards something and she put in loads of work and she was dreading the exam,
1: but it was a, a it goal. It was a goal. It was a no, thing. Yeah. Nothing. nothing. Yeah, no, I I know, I know. So it's it's it's, it's kind of swings around. But we'll yeah. see. We, we will come back to this idea of of exams and because it's interesting you talk about you going to college in your 20s. It's very clear to me that people's brains grow at different stages. Yeah. In the same way as a teenage kid grows at different stages. So you could have a little squirty fella at at, at 13, 14, grows up, yeah. at 17 or 18, right? And it must be the same way your brain. I mean, I don't know enough about it, but that your brain grows at certain stages. So your brain at 17 or 18 is a totally different organ, a totally different creature to your brain at 22, 23. And this idea that 17 or 18 is the arbitrary moment whereby we test people's intelligence based on their intelligence, i.e. not intelligence based on their ability to pass exams by rote. I think, you know, we should have taken this chance, but, you know, it's Ireland, so seizing the opportunity is not necessarily what has defined us as a society over the last while. It's that time of the year.
0: Your vacation is coming up.
1: borough.com slash ACAST.
2: Okay, Mike. So where are we now? You know, we're, we're in beginning of April, second week of April. Where are we now economically? What are the oh. big changes?
1: Okay, so this, this, this last couple of days, two really big things stood out for me on the economy. The first is eventually the European Union. Remember, we were talking about the European Union and this big yep. fight between Italy and ultimately it wasn't Germany, it was actually Netherlands the dutch people were saying there's no way in which europe can have these mutual bonds ie we're not going to pool our resources because the dutch are saying you know what we don't trust you italians over the last couple of decades we've seen italy overspend dutch the dutch have been very so there's a, there's a gang now in europe called the frugal four which is <laughs> germany <laughs> holland austria and finland right these guys do not want to open up their debt markets, they do do not want Italy to be allowed. Within- well,
2: actually, can I just stop you there? Because an update, by the way, on my brother Tony, he's over the worst of it. He's good. He's he's grand now. And stuff. Is he still so, a Marxist? He's still a Marxist, and he sent me a an article from the Guardian there during the week, and he was ranting and raving, and it was all about this economic idea that Amsterdam, in particular, are, are trying to bring in. The mayor of Amsterdam is this whole idea of. Donut economics, yeah, and and I'm curious as to we had a bit of a to and fro on email, and i was curious is is what you're talking about now with the frugal four, is this donut economics that they're
1: no, I mean pursuing donuts, or donut economics is based on the title of a book called Donut Economics, and right. it's written by sense. a very brilliant English economist called Kate Rayworth, who has been down at Kilconomics and I've invited her again. And uh, it is a a view that economics cannot just be based on profit and loss, on balance sheets, on GDP. Yeah. You have to take into account other ideas, such as what they call in economics externalities, like fresh air, like the environment, yeah. Yeah. like the commute, like public services. All these issues, and the reason it's interesting, she called it donors because a she has she told me, uh there is a donut theory in the middle and that's how it looks visually. But she said also, she said, economics alienates people, the word. And nobody doesn't like donuts. <laughs> so we call it donuts was like. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so we might come back to that. Actually, we might, get her, we might get her up on the line.
2: That'd be very interesting.
1: I'll get Kate up on the line. Okay, yeah. so the first thing is no. So the, the Dutch and the Austrians and the Finns and the Germans are living in fear that once they, say they went for these euro bonds, which yeah. Ireland, Spain, Italy, and France in particular, and Portugal were, were all for, right? If this thing passes, which it will, and the Dutch are left picking up the tab for Italy, and there's no way of sanctioning Italy in the future, then the Dutch will end up paying the public service bill of Italy into perpetuity. That's their worry. Right. Okay. But it also speaks to the conflict at the heart of the EU, which is the following. If you have a monetary union, so if you have the same currency, ultimately you kind of have to have the same government. You have to have at some stage a mutual budget. So you have to be like the United States, that you have state budgets and federal budgets, Mm. state taxes and federal taxes. And many people in the European Union, particularly those people who really want to advance the European Union, will have seen this as a great opportunity to have a deeper European Union. Many people, particularly British commentators who are against the EU, continue, as we said last week, to see this as, oh my goodness, they're only one crisis away from a tragedy, right? Mm. And the whole thing ending. Mm. And I think what's much more likely is the way the EU kind of muddles through, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. the resurrection of Merkel has been very interesting. She is now back in pole position as the boss. Well, I'm seeing a lot more of her, I have see, to say. I mean, this yeah. is a woman who was going to retire. Yeah, yeah. She's now the boss. And there's no European politician comes near her in terms of credibility and stature. Yeah. And she does tend, I mean, the beautiful thing about Merkel, she was asked once in an island called Rugen, which is a beautiful part of Germany. It's an island off the north of Germany, off Stralsund, in the middle of the Baltic. Very, very uh, interesting part of Germany. She was asked once in an interview, what was her favorite thing about Germany? And you can imagine if it was, you know, an Irish politician or a British politician, you know. uh, And she said, she thought for a while and she said, hmm, it's the way our windows close. (laughs) Think about that, right? What, what and the, What do you mean by that? But She meant that everything is perfect, right? Right. That basically yeah. we take so much pride in tiny little details. So, for example, you know we're in Irish houses, right? Yeah. After about three years, a new house, the fucking windows are rattling and everything yeah. falls apart. And but, then, everything, right? but Volkswagen ran a whole... On the way the door closed. On the, on the sound of the door closing. Yeah. So the a same idea. So her same idea was, was all about Germanic engineering and precision and attention to detail. Yeah. And basically, if you go, and it's true, if you go to Germany in the middle of winter and you do open one of their windows, you can almost hear the, right? The whole thing, right? Opening, right? Whereas in Ireland, <laughs> yeah. my mother used to spend a terrible draft. Like My mother <laughs> spends her whole time talking about drafts. I've had, I've had hours yeah. of conversation with my ma about drafts, yeah. right? What's going down the back of my neck? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that's, that, was, that, that was a big deal. And of course, they came to a fudge in the European Union this week, right? Yeah. There will be some sort of bonds, but they'll be governed by conditionality, which they call basically, the Italians can't borrow their so heads So is up. this whole
2: thing just highlighted the cracks and the schisms that are already there?
1: Yeah, I would, there are cracks, there are schisms, there are deep chasms between countries. But the interesting thing is it always kind of gets there in the end, yeah. if you know what I mean? You know, they have made 500 billion available. It's a lot of money, and there's various different uh, funds being made available to companies and governments. So they are fighting this uh, with most of their armory. The other thing that was interesting, the Bank of England did something that they've never done, as far at least in my memory. Oh. They said the government can borrow from the Bank of England without issuing debt. And that's our helicopter money. Right, okay. So that's a big movement, Right because they've basically said you can have an extended overdraft for as long as you want, and you don't have to issue debt. And that comes back to my idea of this spending cannot result in austerity, right? So I thought that was quite interesting as a moment this week. And this but is what we should be doing. I think this is what we should be doing, because come back to the idea. I think the the heartbeat of this economy are not the Googles and the Facebooks and the Pfizer's Of this world although they're important nor is it the public surface although it's important the heartbeat of the economy is the small business sector that's what employs half of the people yeah right so one in every two people is employed in a company that has less than 50 employees they are companies that are now running out of cash they are the companies that are going to go bust in fact all great shocks to the economy usually cause what's called consolidation afterwards. The big guys mop up the little guys. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that always happens, yeah. right? And in a country like Ireland, we can't afford that because it's the little guys employ most yeah. of
2: us. Because those businesses are essentially really good businesses. They just can't operate without cash.
1: They're really, really good businesses. They have, And this is an interesting point, right? What happens in a crisis in your balance sheet is something really odd, right? So in good times... The more invoices you have out there, the bigger your business. So you have invoices. So you have loads and loads of people who are about to pay you. And if you were to go to the bank, you would say, look, I've got all these invoices coming in. That's liquidity. That's real money. Mm. Okay. So in good times, having a huge inventory of invoices, i.e. having loads of what's called debtors in your balance sheet is a really good thing. Yeah. Right? Okay. Because it's, it's, almost, it's almost like cash in the bank. Yeah. Right? But in bad times, those invoices switch, they kind of morph almost grotesquely from being a potential asset into a potential liability because you realize the other guy mightn't have any money. So the invoice you have out, like, you owe me two grand, right? Yeah. Four months ago, that was a good thing. Today, that's a really bad thing because there's a grenade about to go off in your balance sheet, which is these guys become potential debtors. So there's a thing in, in, in cash flow management called invoice discounting. So basically, if you had an invoice, and let's say I was doing business with you, God forbid we wouldn't be doing business, right? <laughs> and, and I owed you, let's say, five grand, and I paid you every six months, right? You could go to a bank or a finance company and say, look, this invoice is coming in. Can I have cash against this? So yeah. it's almost like collateral. Yeah. Now, those, that business has stopped completely, right? And also, you've got all these small companies with all these invoices out there. And rather than thinking that these are bankable assets, the small companies are thinking these are about to default on me. So the central bank needs to come in and drop money into people's accounts to make sure that people aren't nervous about defaulting. And then what's going to happen is people are going to say, OK, well, that's not going to default. That's real cash. I can then continue. And then I can go and buy things. And I then can become somebody's debtor. But I then can write an invoice to somebody for work. So it demands a little bit of thinking at the top of the central bank to say, what is our job? Your job is to make sure that this economy recovers from this pandemic and to make sure that if it is a cash flow problem, we inject the cash. Now, even, John, if the central bank wanted, and they were very nervous about this, Why not take the invoice side of the balance sheet as collateral? So say to the small businesses, we're going to take these invoices, but the central bank wouldn't do Say, instruct the banks to do this. And then you would actually make the entire credit crunch disappear. But
2: We've been talking about this very thing for the last few weeks. Yeah. And there's been a lot of reaction to it as well. I mean, not only us, a lot of other people are, are talking about it as well. But we haven't heard from the central bank as such. So what kind of debates are they having? What's their
1: reticence in all this? Their reticence is I don't think they understand their own power, which is really creepy. Well, he's the new guy, though, as well. Yeah, but- not only that, I just—I I think that, that, that the, the whole institution is doesn't understand what its function is. And the reason of that is because after the financial crash, which they missed completely, think about
2: it, mm.
1: right, they missed the whole thing, and they were having a go at me for years and years and years for saying this thing's going to blow up, right? They missed the whole thing. It Then what happens is the institution became obsessed by that mistake and they employed lots and lots of regulators to go into banks and finances and regulate and regulate and regulate and regulate. They forgot that regulation is one arm of central banking. The other arm is monetary policy and keeping cash flowing in. Yeah. So it's been taken over by regulators who don't understand economics. And they don't understand that it's their job in a crisis to do the right thing. And the right thing is to keep these companies afloat. And you do whatever you have to do because companies, small companies are the lifeblood of the economy. And the thing is looking forward, John. Yeah. We don't know how we're going to come out of this. We really don't know how we're going to come out of this. Is it going to be in the next few months? Is it going to be in six months? And actually... It's all going to be based on testing. And very soon, the most important test we're going to have is not the test to say you have coronavirus. It's the test to say you had coronavirus and you are now fine. So this is called the antibody testing, which is the one that's going to come in. At the moment, we're still talking about testing for who has it. Mm. But very, very soon yeah, that course. conversation is going to change. And the reason the antibody testing is so important is that shows you how many people have had the disease, have had no symptoms or have symptoms and have recovered. Then you can get a sense of the level of immunity in the society. And then you get a sense how close we are to being able to lift the restrictions. So what we're hoping for is that those antibody tests come in and they show that a high percentage of the population has had it. And that percentage of the population has now recovered. The big fear for financial markets, and I don't think it, is that the antibody tests comes in and they say a very low percentage of the population has had it. Yeah. But the mortality rates are very, very high relative to the amount because that means that we have a long, what they call in statistics, a long tail, right? Right. So the, the bit... You know the bell curve thing, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the bell curve is the bit that spikes up, the bell, but the tail is the extremes of the bell curve, yeah. okay? And if you have a long tail in statistics, what it means is that you have severe reverberations of the original shock that go on for a long time. Right. And that's what keeps the economy in lockdown. So the, the long tail is the dangerous part because that's when financial markets reverse... That what happens is if there is this long tail, if the antibody test shows that lots and lots of people have not had it, then we have to entertain a longer lockdown. Now, what that means is that lots and lots of businesses will have no business for quite some time. Financial markets will reverse. The monetary and fiscal stimulus that we're putting in now will actually wane and the economies will be much, much weaker. So that's the big fear. Now, but the good thing is, I was just talking on the science, because let's establish the science. I was just talking to Luke O'Neill. I had him on the line a couple of minutes ago. This is what he said. Luke, how are you?
0: Hiya, David. How's it going?
1: Good, good. You're holed up in the bedroom there, I see.
0: I am in my bedroom. I'm staying away from all the downstairs disturbances. You know, that's the simplest thing. So, (laughs) hiding, I'm cocooning myself in my own.
1: No bedroom. Yeah, no, no, no. Tell me, Luke, where do we, where do you think now we are at as of this week with COVID in Ireland and globally?
0: Yes. Well, I mean, it's amazing, David, isn't it? I mean, every, I'm not joking, every 30 minutes or less, I get new information coming into my Twitter feed, you know, so it's incredible. As you know, the amount of activity is vast in the world at the moment, you know, and all these numbers and all the rest of it, you know. I mean, you know, we're stuck in our houses, aren't we, for another, what, three weeks, I guess it is. So, But they do say the curve seems to be flattening, which is a good sign, you know. And if we keep up with this now, the viral load will disappear or go down, hopefully. And that's the key thing to watch for now, you see. Because if we all stay in our houses, we don't spread it. And then hopefully, you know, the viral uh, levels will decrease hugely, you see. And they've got to go down substantially still, though. And they're still cautious, David. It's not clear when that will be. But certainly, the lockdown is working, is the current view, which is good news, you know.
1: Would you explain to me that, the viral load, okay? And is that the incident of the disease itself, is it?
0: Yeah, yeah. So if everybody was in their houses and not let out, right? It lasts about two weeks in your body, and then your immune system kills it, and then it's gone. Like, literally, the immune system destroys this virus. So if everybody was in their houses within two or three weeks, it would actually disappear from our country. Isn't that amazing, you know? That's the first thing. Now, the trouble is, there's not full compliance. It could be lurking somewhere in the community still, you know. And that's why they have to test. Testing tells us how many people that are positive for this virus. But in the ideal world, the immune system kills it and everybody goes back to normal, you see. So that's the big question at the moment. When do we get to that point? In China, they got there in two and a half months. So it went from very high percent of people that were positive for the virus down to very small numbers. And when you get to a certain small number, then you can open up the doors basically and let people out, you know. And we're heading in that direction, which is the good news, I guess. But it will take a few more weeks. It could take, two months, we don't know, you know, and they're still very cautious in terms of predicting that.
1: And I was reading uh, about antibody tests, like the idea that at what stage do we get a sense, Luke, how many people have it, what sort of levels of immunity there are? Do we we know anything about that?
0: That's the next critical thing, David. So as you know, if you test for antibodies, that means you've had it because those antibodies are against the virus. They've killed the virus, actually. Antibodies are the most powerful weapon in the immune system in some ways. They latch onto the virus. And they destroy it. It's it's a wonderful example of immunity in action, I guess. So, if you have antibodies, that means you've had the virus. Secondly, you're now protected against getting reinfected, is the beauty of this, because your body's full of these antibodies. It's like as if you've built up your army in a way. And then, if a virus comes into your body, the antibodies kill it. So, in other words, if you detect antibodies in people and they've no symptoms, give them the green passport or whatever color it might be they can go back out you know because now they're 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 now resistant and they aren't infectious anymore and we have to move to that many countries are moving to um uh, antibody measurements obviously with a view to achieving this and one good thing david is i think uh, maybe you wrote about in the irish times today if young people have antibodies in them right and they're healthy they are now bulletproof let them out has to be the next logical step because they aren't going to infect anybody and they won't get infected themselves The, the big risk is if it let people out who aren't protected, and the virus is still lurking. You get a second wave, you know, of infection, and then we're all back to square one again. And nobody can imagine that happening. In the past, with flu, that's happened a couple of times. With a it happened. You know, it's called this epidemic yo-yo up and down. It can go up and down four or five times in some of these previous studies. And nobody wants that, you see. So, so it is all about trying to get the viral sort of the, the amount of virus in the community down. And then letting people out is the key next step in this process in many ways.
1: And, and Luke, can I just ask you, you know, what have you learned? What has the, the scientific community learned in the last eight or nine weeks? What would you say are going to be the big lessons and then the long-term implications for the health service, the long-term implications for yeah. perceptions of our vulnerability to these sort of things?
0: Absolutely. That's the, I mean, that's a great question, to be honest. I mean, the world... Has changed, David. Okay. I mean, one, I was on the phone yesterday, someone, you know, we, we won the Second World War, if I can use the word we, uh, by physicists. They invented the atom bomb, right? We'll win this war through immunologists. So suddenly the focus will shift now to immunologists. And after the Second World War, if you were a physicist in America, they threw money at you. You know, all that great physics happened and great, the, the Large Hadron Collider would not have happened, I suspect, unless the Second World War had prove how great physicists can be. One prediction is immunology and virology and all these areas about infection. They'll be the next thing because the risk of another infection is there, David. There could be SARS-CoV-3. That's, by the way, sars cov it's a bit like the wars as well. It used to be SARS-CoV and then the second one is start numbering them then, you know, and there could be a SARS-CoV-3. So we got to get ready for that one next, you know, and that's a, that is a real danger I guess and let's hope to god we've learned them um, from saRS cov too how to handle the next one that might come along you see so so that's something that's changed that the immunology is now front and center in some ways you see um, secondly we, we've learned a huge amount of science there so it's remarkable actually how much science we've learned about this virus and questions that would have been there if you get infected will you be protected the answer is almost certainly yes you will be protected and that's recent stuff that was done so one example is they infected monkeys and they're pretty close to us. These macaque monkeys are very similar to us, same kind of immune system, same disease as us. They gave them the virus, and then the, the monkeys got sick for two weeks or so and they couldn't get reinfected. They tried very hard to reinfect them. That gives us confidence, you know. So we're learning now that you will be protected, for example. And then the big the big challenge, David, is, is a vaccine, as you know, and, and is that possible? And this morning, the big news this morning was a group in Oxford have said they'll have one by September. Now that could be optimistic. You know, it was in the Telegraph and all the newspapers covered this. And I know those guys. They're going to think of the Jenner Institute in Oxford, led by an Irish physician called uh, Adrian Hill. Actually, I had a big collaboration with them on malaria a few years ago. And they're very good. I mean, they're one of the world's best um, centers for vaccines. And and this Sarah Gilbert, who I happen to know as well, she said, oh, I'm, it's going very well. You know, we may have a vaccine by September. So, again, they must have some interesting Technology there to speed up the process, and that's the other thing. By the way, it's, it's a bit—it is a bit like a war. All these techno guys are in there inventing new ways of getting at these things, you know. And again, that will be useful in the future as well, I guess.
1: Luke, as always, listen. This was brilliant. I know it's shorter than usual, but I will, if you don't mind, we'll be coming back to your weekend. This is a bit no like your—it's. I was about to say this is a bit like you know this is a bit like your Celtic Tiger or your banking crisis <laughs> for immunologists. You know, <laughs> well, that stuff was to yeah. economists. This stuff is to you lot exactly you need to give me some tips David because
0: how did you cope because I'm getting phone calls every 10 minutes on this damn thing I'm sure you were in that period switch it <laughs> off, <laughs>
1: switch it off right. all right Luke exactly. listen take care of yourself see you bye, yeah. bye bye bye
2: well Luke uh, he never
1: disappoints that fella he's, he just explains things yeah really well. he's
2: really good but Danny is very interesting what he's saying about immunologists becoming the new rock stars like the way the physicists did in in the golden age after after the Second World War.
1: Yeah, no, Luke is really. I mean, he's one of those British, he He's he's able to make things simple without simplifying. Yeah, and that's a real skill. You know, he's not saying this is easy. He's saying this is this is hard stuff. Yeah, but he explains it, and I think that point. About the physicists is great because it's back to that idea we were talking about earlier on about the long tail. It's the long term reverberations of a shock, right? And what he was saying there is the long term reverberations of the Second World War for the science community was the elevation of the fellows who split the atom, okay, yeah. the physicists. And the physics can answer so much. And this, you know, goes all the way through, and you can see it with the huge amount of investment in physics from universities, et cetera. He's saying now it's immunologists that will become, yeah. and that will get resources. And what he's saying, and the reason is, the diseases are out there. You know, These things don't go away. These pandemics are out there. Yeah. We're, we're now going away. Well, to as he was for- saying
2: before, it's, it was kind of every 10 years, there's a, a, an outbreak of some sort of COVID.
1: Yeah, and I mean, if you look at how the countries that had SARS 10 years ago, or 15 years ago, have responded on a public health level, on a contract tracing level, on a general society, we've got this, we understand what's going on. Yeah, That was the legacy of SARS. What he's saying is we're going to end up like this. We will be ready for the next one. And immunologists will be on prime time every night. And they will be, as you said, the people, it's also interesting... It's the return of experts. Do you remember this whole Trump thing? And yeah. Is that the expert? You know, no, we need experts. I want to listen to Luke O'Neill explaining to me how this virus mutates and what it does. I don't want to listen to somebody yeah. who reads the Daily Mail. I wonder, will there like, be a, a spike in points for the Leaving Cert? Oh, back to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny, well, funny you talk about... Yeah, yeah, probably. For biology, <laughs> yeah. definitely. And uh, But it's funny you talk about spike. I was in O'Brien's wine on Good Friday. Of, of course you are getting my getting I still feel oh, kind Good of Friday. I thought that's great. Like no, I feel kind of dirty getting a gargle on Good Friday. You feel a bit naughty. And I went in and I was talking to the dude. I in not done Leary, you nice fella. And of course we were social distancing. The queues it was kind of mortifying. It was yeah. like the walk of shame. You know, the next morning is like, yeah. oh man, it wasn't me. Right? It was like the walk of shame. There was a whole yeah. a kind of Everybody sneaking, just had their heads down. Sneaking, yeah, exactly, exactly. The sneaking thing. Uh, all the way back up Marine Road, the top of Neary Shopping Centre, and anyway, I got into the uh, I got into the O'Brien's one. So I'm talking to the geezer uh, behind the the visor. I said, "How are you doing?" He says, "We're doing great, man." I said, "What?" Well, he says, "We are busier than Christmas." Right? now, think about this, right? Yeah. Think about how mad Irish people go at Christmas, right? I know it's, and he is saying that they are selling selling more gargle, right? on Good Friday than they did on Christmas Eve. Think about that in the wow. context. And so... That'd be a first you, ever. You talk about the spike and the consequences. I think one of the major consequences of this is going to be a serious, serious spike in boozing, liver failure, big all time. sorts of problems. No, yeah. seriously. So that's a spike. That's one of the spikes. That's a I know, spike, it, yeah. And
2: it's amazing that, uh, like I'm a big fan of O'Brien's as well, but... But it's that whole like, and it's not only O'Brien's dead. So it's I presume it's everyone, is it? Yeah,
1: but online shopping has gone. Actually, that's the really interesting. So we talk. Let's talk about the consequences, the economic consequences that we that we can actually glean because there's long term ones and there's short term ones. Yeah. But it's very clear that the coronavirus was the thing that online shopping needed. To propel it into the mainstream, yeah, okay, because it wasn 't really mainstream, if you look in the united states i 'm only looking at American figures right, yeah, in American figures, particularly in food retailers, so if you think food retailing is probably the biggest business in the United States, yeah, it's six trillion dollar business, wow, that is phenomenal, okay, but I thought
2: online shopping was on the up it's anyway wh- with with Amazon getting into grocery shopping and that kind of stuff, but I wonder it is it more a case of It's a boost to online shopping, but also possibly a nail in the coffin to retail shops where shops may become just kind of showcases.
1: Well, I think this is very interesting that in the last week in American retailing, there has been a 30% increase in online shopping. Wow. And 50% of those people have never shopped online before. So that Ooh, is that a is massive
2: trade. Yeah, and
1: if their experience is good, it will profoundly, profoundly change the retail space. Now, the implication, I, I touched on it last week, I'm going to come back to it. Dublin commercial property is over. Yeah, right? It's over. That idea that you're going to pay huge multiples for shiny buildings in Dublin when you can work from home, it's over, yeah. right? So the last thing you want to be doing is owning one of those REITs or a Dublin commercial property portfolio. That's over. Bricks and mortar businesses on retail are going to be profoundly affected. Now, of that American figure, of food retailing, Walmart took 58% of the whole thing. Wow, that's incredible. 58%. So Amazon bought a shop called Whole Foods in America. That's who it was. And that was their thing, right? But it's not... It's not at the races. 58% okay. going to Walmart, which comes back to my point about consolidation. When you get a massive shumptarian shock like this, where the business model changes, what you get immediately is consolidation that the big players come in and they hoover up the market. And then the market recalibrates and then the independents come back. But I think that a lot of independent retailers will find it very difficult to deal unless they come up with their own strategy yeah. how do they get to their own mm. market how do they get to their uh, to their people and it's actually interesting in that regard i saw a really really fantastic piece of software for small companies oh yeah called clickandcollect.com it's not an app it's a piece of software it's so mate of mine come up with it it's so a full full for what do they call disclosure. it? Disclosure. Disclosure. Full disclosure. But I was talking to him over the over the last couple of days, and they launched this product on, on on Thursday, and one of their first clients saw a massive increase in their online. Because online, so
2: what is it? Was it? So basically,
1: it's click and collect. It's basically you know what happens in most small businesses is they might have a website or a Facebook presence or whatever, right? But they don't have the software set up. To actually sell online, so like right. a pizzeria or a restaurant or whatever, and yet everybody to stay open has got to offer a takeout service yeah. of some sort. Yeah. Right. This is a piece of software which actually customises itself to their business, and it's basically click and collect. It makes the whole thing very simple. You say like, "I want a pizza" or "I want this, that, and the other," yeah. and it also has a kind of an interesting function for for staggering of times and things. But anyway, the point is, it's called click and collect. Com. And you know, one of my big things and the whole podcast big vibe is small businesses. Yeah. Because I always absolutely see, I've always thought that you know setting up a small business is a heroic act. I really believe that. Remember, of I, it is. I talked about James Joyce, you know, in the past and, yeah, and the, the cinema. fact he set up a cinema. I think it's a really brilliant thing to do. It's brave, it's courageous. And you know, despite teaching in university, you know, I feel that academics are given far too much hero worship here. And you yeah. should be worshipping the people who are actually trying to stay open today. So this is an interesting. So I have a look at uh, ClickandCollect
2: yeah, that's, that's brilliant, actually. That sounds fantastic. Well, yeah, it is but it's also
1: like, um, and
2: since we're we're talking about those kind of our new new ideas and stuff, charities as well is an area that's been been really badly hit actually. So oh, yeah, the likes of As I Am, like we did
1: stuff with them. This is your autism charity.
2: Yeah, yeah. As I Am. Yeah. So this is April is World Autism Month, and that's. You know obviously, all the fundraising events have have shut down and stuff, so they're trying to come up with new ideas for fundraising and another one I saw was the Jack and Jill Foundation, you know for kids who needs palli- palliative care yeah, and, yeah, and all so, that kind of, uh, they do brilliant work but well, they
1: do i mean it's the last thing you ever ever want to be is the parent of a kid absolutely who is dying i mean and it's 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 horrendous but they've so, come I, I, up
2: with this amazing and again, it's an online thing called incognito. Have a look at incognito.com. I think it's on the end of April, 24th of April, I think. And what it is, is there's they've something like 2,000 postcard size sketches or drawings or paintings from all sorts of people, from really big names in the art world to people like Springsteen and Bono and lots of other people. And you don't know who you're buying. You just click on and you have a look around and then you go to the cash rights there buy that, and then you find out, hey, I just bought a Bono thing, or I just bought a whoever, you know? That's
1: brilliant. That's so really it's col- good. incognito. Yeah, incognito. Yeah, incognito. But let's let's keep, you know, over the next few weeks, let's keep talking about small businesses because, as I've always said, the big businesses can look after themselves. Yeah. The public sector looks after itself. The public sector has now got the ECB behind it, you know, et cetera, the tax base. But it's the small guys who are employing hundreds of thousands of people in actual fact, the smokers who employ over a million people in this country and all over the world, hundreds of thousands, who don't really get a break, and this thing is going to be an opportunity for small businesses that figure out how to sell online, because the gravity or the sorry, because the grant has shifted, mm. uh, and the American data again always leads European data on this, and what we're seeing in the American data, particularly in the food retailing, which has been, a have seen a massive switch because. Obviously, people are cooking at home now for the first time ever. Yeah, that's true. You know, think about it, right? Yeah. So I think that is, these are short-term changes that are going to have profound ramifications. You know, the commercial property in this city is going to be in the toilet. And rightly so, actually, because it was too expensive. Yeah. You know, it's not that it's, you know, that rightly so, but it's something had to bring the price of it down. And if now we see a switch from commercial development in Dublin and all over Ireland, mm. which was dominating the residential sector and yeah. crowding out the res- residential sector to residential, then this will have been a good thing. And again, people will be get used to Zoom, you know, Google Teams, whatever your poison yeah. is, and it will change the way people work, I-, I think, forever. I don't think people are going to go back to the way they were.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many consequences that we haven't even quite sussed yet, obviously. So... Well like what, what do you think Are there do, do you I, think I are think there any may, other obvious ones I, I
1: think there's an obvious one to me which is that never ever ever again will european countries or the united states be dependent on china for ppe equipment for masks for anything for anything anything the idea of european countries lining up in a queue yeah. and out trying to outbid each other for yeah. Chinese supplies, yeah. this is not ever going to happen again. I think if you were sitting there advising Boris Johnson or Angela Merkel or whoever, one of these big keys, you would be whispering in their ear, never again. Yeah. Right? Because what this has shown is our profound vulnerability on the manufacturing side. Yeah. In actual fact, this should be a boon for Trump's agenda completely of bringing well, everything back home. Yeah. But I mean, this is a huge thing. And unfortunately for us in Ireland, we have made a business of being the most tax-efficient, profitable cog in a global supply chain. And our working assumption is that global supply chains, which reach into all sorts of weird parts of the world, are still the business model for multinational companies. After this, I see a huge, particularly from, Eisenhower used to call the military-industrial complex, which he described yeah. as basically the military machine in the United States. But we also have the, you know, all other complexes, you know, manufacturing, the pharma-industrial complex, of which we're a huge part. Sure. Never again will European countries say we're dependent on a vaccine from China are on pharmaceuticals from China. It's going to be really... So, so those essential industries are going to, I think, come right back close to where those companies are yeah. from. And that, I think, is a massive change. And what this means is that the business model, which has been regarded as the normal business model since the fall of the Berlin Wall, has been supply chain management. That You open up a poorer country like China or yeah. India... You put labor-intensive parts of your production in there to take advantage of their low labor costs. You then work your supply chain because your supply chain, in effect, is your manufacturing base as a company. And you automate your high labor cost places like Europe and America. So you basically have robots in Europe and people in China. I know it sounds kind of gruff, but that's, in effect, what supply Mm. chain management is. That is all going to change. And we in Ireland have to figure out where do we position ourselves for that change? Because all of our multinationals are assembly points of inputs that come from all over the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah, of course. And then they're reassembled here, they're taxed here, and they're re-exported out. So I think that long-term, there is no way. It's the end of globalism? Not the end. It's going to look very different. Right. I hope it's not the end because I think that globalization, as a general concept, has done quite a lot for the world. I mean, I, I know people say you're a, a you're a neoliberal. I would describe myself as a paleoliberal. <laughs> but paleo being the Greek for the Greek for ancient. Yeah. Like I've always you're been a, dinosaur, a
2: liberal.
1: Mac. <laughs> I've no, but I've always been a liberal, you know. But I, I do. I think that's a big change, and I, I don't think we've quite figured out where that's going either. No,
2: and it's interesting. You brought up the whole idea of the new kind of. Bretton Woods, because what you spoke about last week, I've been thinking about it a lot, is this whole... You not like,
1: take this podcast so seriously. I do. The fire I were you. It's <laughs> churning
2: over my head <laughs> constantly. Jesus,
1: get this fella out of the lockdown <laughs> very
2: quickly. Get him to do a proper job. But I, I knew Bretton Woods-style thingy. Yes. And and so I've been thinking about this, and, and initially I was thinking, yeah, Mike, yeah, that's a good idea, and that's what we need. But then what bothers me about that is the individuals that will be involved. So, if you had a Trump and a Johnson, and okay, then you'll have a Merkel and
1: ah, well, Johnson's oh, Mickey Mouse down fairness, but how would on. They, well
2: they they it'd still be the key players in the e u America G, abe all that kind of stuff, and they'll sit down and they'll have their Bretton woods style thing, but they've very different agendas as to what they had back in the after oh, the second yeah. world war, so while the time
1: might be right for this kind of restructuring, we don't have the right individuals to... Yeah, well, you are right. I mean, it's it's not only do we not have the right individuals at the top, we don't have the right advice coming in either. Yeah. So you take someone like Trump, this would be an anathema to him because this is globalization and global cooperation and it's the opposite of America first. It's yeah. the planet first. It's the world
2: first. Well, it's the very fact that he's actually, you know, talking about withdrawing funds from the WHO in the middle of a pandemic.
1: What's yeah, but he's, but he's... talking about? But again, you know, I mean, you know, he's going, he's going to his base. His base wants the Yanks to use this as an opportunity to basically draw in their horns in terms of their engagement with the world. I mean, it's very clear. When I look at... I remember when I was a kid looking at the UN Security Council and thinking, this is grossly unfair. You have Russia... China, France, which is a Mickey Mouse country, Britain, which is a Mickey Mouse country, yeah. and the United States, right? The only real power there is China and the United States, and of course Russia because it's military powerful.
2: Yeah,
1: but you think now the way the world has changed, you, know, you think these Brazil, South Africa, Nigeria, and of course India being a massive country. Yeah, some of the the Asian, you know, Indonesia, these are massive, massive countries. Japan and Germany, of course, because they couldn't be included because of the Second World War. But yeah. the whole world's geopolitics, geography, power base has shifted so completely that the UN Security Council looks to me like it's, it's, it's like a club that was suspended in time in yeah. nineteen. It is a talking right. show. Right. So a new Bretton Woods would have to be driven by China Ooh. and by the United States. Right. Because the Chinese, don't forget the Chinese Belt and Rose Initiative, right? Chinese have spent, they, they have this thing called checkbook diplomacy, where they write a check to every country. Now, I don't think China will be the same after this either, because our friend Xi Jinping is the most autocratic leader they have had since Mao. Yeah. And I'm not sure that autocratic leaders get through catastrophes. I think that their credibility is forever, ever impaired by their inability to protect their own people, which is why I think China will actually not emerge as this incredibly strong country after this, as certain people fear. I think, in fact, China will go through a period of quite deep self-reflection after this. I also think that China will be deeply isolated because I think the ramifications... I talked about the idea that we will never be hostage again to Chinese manufacturing yeah the perception of China will change quite dramatically. The United States, of course, the question is whether or not the Americans vote for Donald Trump in large numbers. Now, all the evidence is that Trump's popularity is connected to the rate of unemployment and to the strength of the stock market. stock market is down, what, 25%? And American unemployment, like 20 million Americans have become unemployed in the last two weeks. 20 yeah. million. I know, right? I know, yeah. So I think it's all, up and it's all to play for. Mm. It's all to play for. Now, Sleepy Joe, <laughs> I know Sleepy Joe because, of course, my mate Bernie packed well, it
2: in. I think that was the worst thing that could have happened is Bernie dropping out. Because a lot of Bernie's base, as we spoke about before, are very similar to Trump's to base. Trump's base. Yeah. So if Bernie's base are now looking for a home, Trump might be the one. Well,
1: so I, I, I actually think Trump will walk it. It's, 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 it's a travesty. I don't want to hear it, but yeah. we can come back to that. We can come back to that. So I think the consequences are, are those sort of consequences are quite immediate. So you've got the, the immediate business consequences, and then you've got this long-term supply chain, which changes the business model. And then, of course, you have what I would call the legacy issues, issues that may just take some time to iron out. Such so as? Well, well, for example, you know, people will want to find scapegoats for what happened. Right. Now, there was an amazing, you know, this amazing book that I, I love reading called How the Irish Became White, which oh, yeah. is about Irish people in America over the years, right? It's an amazing book by Noel Ignatieff. There's a beautiful piece in it about an outbreak of cholera that occurred in the United States in 1849. Okay. The outbreak of cholera emerged. This is when
2: there was just the the big influx of the Irish from the famine, just after.
1: Not only was it a big influx, the figures are extraordinary. Uh, In 1850, 5,000 Irish people a day arrived in New York. Wow. A day. So if you think of New York, Boston, and of course Philadelphia, the three big cities where the East Coast cities where they arrived in. Yeah. They arrive in, they're incredibly poor. They arrive into the slums. The slums are rife with cholera. Cholera comes in bad water, in in unclean water. They think this cholera epidemic came from the Erie Canal. Do you remember we were talking about the Erie Canal when we were up in, uh, where was it, Buffalo? Buffalo, yeah. And the Irish get blamed as being the carriers. So there's a massive anti-Irish outbreak in the United States. That sets up... Was this just finger-pointing? This was basically saying there were more, poor people were Irish.
2: Yeah, yeah. And yeah.
1: therefore, the white, the wasps didn't like the Irish, yeah. right? This was yet another stick to bash the paddies with. And this is where the no-nothings come from. So the no-nothings were originally an American Masonic order called the Order of the Star-Spangled Banner. Isn't that a good one? Right. And the Order of the Star-Spangled Banner were American tradesmen and usually, workers on the lower levels of society okay. who were terrified that Irish laborers would drag down their wages okay. because so many Irish were there, yeah. and that Catholicism would infiltrate the American dream, which was always a wasp, Anglo Saxon, Protestant yeah. dream. Yeah. They decided to call themselves, you know, Episcopalians yeah. because they couldn't call themselves Anglicans. After the American War of Independence. Right. It sounded of course, too yeah. English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though it was the same religion. Yeah. So you've got all this great stuff going on. So just look in terms of always like the great, the, the Black Death, the Jews were blamed for it.
2: Yeah. Okay. They get, they get blamed for everything, though. Well, in generally.
1: actual fact, the Jews get blamed. The, the, and this is, of course, in the Passover week that we were discussing this the pogroms against the Jews after the Black Death were so severe. Right? And so outrageous that the Pope, who was no friend of the Jews, had to intervene and say, This has gone too far. Really? The Jewish people were being burned at the stake. They were being herded around. They were buried in mass graves. Horrendous stuff. Because a rumor started that the Jews poisoned the wells of the people. And that's where the Black Death came from. And they were the scapegoats in 1348. The Irish in America were the scapegoats in 1849. The ramifications of that was the emergence of the Know Nothings, who became a huge political force and ultimately led to nativism, of which our friend Donald Trump is now the latest reincarnation. Yeah. Right? So there's a long And he's finger pointing right, left, and center. He's finger pointing right, left, and center. You know, the Hunan disease, the Chinese disease, yada, yada, yada. Kung Fu. Kung flu, yeah, <laughs> this case, it is quite good, actually. <laughs> so that is the background noise to all this stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, John, we've got to be, I think we've got to be incredibly careful, you know, at the end of all this, because it will come to an end, is not to point fingers at, you know, certain people, certain individuals. Yeah. Particularly being Irish, because the finger was pointed at us. Now, there's a great other book that I love, which is called Immigrant Life in New York City. From I know I read all this weird shit from 1825 to 1863 by a fella called Robert Ernst.
2: Do you know what Mac? I'm glad you read those books because then you can just kind of still. <laughs> I, I can do. Who was it who wanted everything on a one pager? Harry Truman.
1: Yeah. Give us that. Yeah. I'm so. a one page guy, <laughs> and he was followed by the Irish Harry Truman, who was Albert Reynolds. Albert Reynolds. That's who I'm I a was one thinking, page right? guy. Okay. So yeah, well, I spend my time reading this, but this is amazing. This is about the sixth ward. Which is in New York, south of Broadway. Yeah, I'm just reading for you, right? Yeah, yeah, go. On. It's the center of contagion of typhus breaking out, cholera breaking out. This is a quote: respiratory diseases took likewise took their toll. Tuberculosis, pneumonia, bronchitis were common, and these were the he called the great scourge of the poor population. But look at this, right? So the biggest hospital in New York was called the Bellevue Hospital, right? right? This is how disproportionate slum-dwelling poor Irish people were. Just check this out, right? Irish-born patients in the city institutions were nearly always the majority. The natives of Ireland comprised 53.9% of New York City's foreign-born inhabitants in 1851, right? So this is after the cholera outbreak, which is phenomenal, 53%. But at the Bellevue Hospital, 85% Of all foreign-born admitted in this period were born in Ireland. The comparative good health of German immigrants is in striking contrast to Irish immigrants. And it goes on to say that maybe one of the reasons was that the Irish arrived in such a terrible state after the famine that they were already incredibly... Their immune systems... of course they were, were And they were traumatised. But if you look at what happened to Irish people in various outbreaks of cholera in the United States, what you see is exactly the same pattern as we're seeing here, which is that poor people suffer most. In the United States right now, the black population is suffering much more than the white population, right? You see the same thing in the UK. We spoke about last week what happens when this thing takes hold in Africa and in India where people can't self-isolate. You live in a slum, there's nowhere you can go. And if you look at the evidence, as Irish people, we should really listen to the echoes of our forefathers and our people who went before us. Because it was our people who were once seen as the carriers of these diseases. And it was our people who were shunned and who were bullied and who were humiliated in America in the 1850s. So when I see people beginning Now that it's peaking to point the finger at poor Chinese immigrants or the poor Chinese people who work in those sweatshops over there in China, who may well be the people in Wuhan who were going to the wet markets. I think, hold on a second, as Irish people, we've been there before. We know what it feels like. And let's not forget our history. How are you doing there? It is David. I hope you're not going totally mental with this bloody lockdown, lock-in thing. Let's hope it passes soon, but who knows? So why not together use this opportunity to learn economics? I know you're interested in economics. You guys are tuning in. You're clearly, clearly clued in. Why don't we actually put a structure on this and do a course? Now, what I'm offering you now is my Trinity MBA course, which I devised for my students. It is a global macro course dealing with the great economic thinkers, the great economic ideas, booms and busts and finance. We're going to be dealing with behavioural economics. We're going to be dealing with popular geopolitics, Brexit, Trump, all that stuff, the fallout from the pandemic, basic things you need to know in microeconomics, which feed into macroeconomics, and then tying it all together, economic history. The first episode, the introduction is free for everyone and then if you like that, you can go a wee bit deeper by joining me on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams and become an advanced Patreon member and then we're going to do the whole course over the next few weeks, you're going to come out the far side of this bleeding pandemic and economic genius and we'll do that together. Okie dokie, talk to you later.